Welcome to the Critical Futures Podcast. It's critical because the time is now to conjure the world and communities we want to live and thrive in. But it's also futurity, or the intentional imagining and materializing of liberated futures, where freedom from oppression, trauma, violence, and discrimination are realized. In this series, The Future Of, we chat with experts in various sectors to learn about what they are doing to shift the critical now for a radical new future. I am Dr. Amber Johnson, Executive Director of the Institute for Healing Justice and Equity, and I will be your host for this episode. Welcome. I am so thrilled to have the one and only Kina Reed, a Jedi, which stands for Justice, Equity, Diversity, and Inclusion. So a Jedi, practitioner, and the founding steward of J. Reed Consulting. She has an MA in Communication Studies and formerly held a dual faculty administrator role at Louisiana State University as the Director of Forensics. She says it's her most profound honor to be an aunt, educator, published researcher, conference presenter, and keynote speaker. But let's be real, I wanted her here today because of three beautiful things that she has created. Divesting from whiteness, please say black, and the anti-blackness reader. Kena Reed is the truth, y'all, and she's going to tell us the truth. And that is what we need if we are to create new critical futures. Kena Reed, welcome to the Critical Futures Podcast. Hey. That's me being DJ Khaled. When I, when I approached <laughs> Kena about being on the podcast, I said, well, what do you want to talk about? Because this is the future of series. And we talked, we started having this conversation about being present. And we said, let's talk about the future of present. And so, Kina, let's talk about it. What does it mean to live in this space right now? And how are we going to use these present moments to create alternative futures where thriving is not this abstract concept that we are reaching for, but something that we wake up to every single day and rest to every single day? Your listeners are going to be like, Man, Keena ain't never answered no questions explicitly. And I'm going to say, that's the Southerner in me. I always joke and say, I'll go up and down the Mississippi River before I land someplace. Hmm. I have these moments. So let's talk about why I'm not a business owner. So maybe that, that, that will give me a good grounding place. Sure. When I first officially IRS, that's... <laughs> When I let the government know <laughs> that I was a business, <laughs> there's a there's a formal term for it, y'all, but I'm gonna call it IRS. And so when I officially IRS and started to have to do all of this paperwork through the state and the Fed, and they and they you have to name, but you are, mm-hmm. and everywhere, owner, owner, owner. Mm, doesn't sit well. My ancestral guts reject that terminology, right? At first, I was like, come on, Kina, push through the anti-Blackness of it, right? Like, <laughs> girl, you could own some stuff. And then I was like, but the more I tried to push myself to use the language of ownership, the more I was like, inside, was like, nope, we're not doing this. And part of it was deeply tied to my belief, which is that humans ought not own things. Mm. Children, mm. homes, mm. cars, mm. land. Mm. So I couldn't make myself pass something, pass along, even linguistically, something I don't believe in my heart to be true. Mm. Yeah. So then I sat there and I had to create some alternative language. And what I settled upon, fam, was steward, right? I am the founding steward of J. Reed Consulting LLC, Mm. right? And I'm just using that as an example of in the present of being aligned with my values and beliefs while being surrounded by institutional violence that would have me take ownership of things that I never intended to own, that would have me use language that doesn't feel good with my body. And so I think in a snapshot, that's what I'm saying. It is about 
recognizing that in the future, stewardship is what we should be valuing, right? We don't have that now, but I'm practicing it now. So learning how to practice the values, learning how to embody the beliefs that we know the future of our species will have to come accustomed to if we're going to sustain what we have. Mm. Let's talk about stewardship. I love, I love that terminology because it gives us license to guide mm-hmm. versus consume. Yep, Th- that part. Right? Ownership is about consumption. Mm-hmm. It is about having something. Yep. And maybe that's why I don't like paying my mortgage. <laughs> but Get into it. Get into right? it of stewardship and ownership is about domination too let's add that to the domination absolutely because when you are guiding someone your job is to listen first and then apply second Mm -hmm. when you are dominating someone your job is to apply first and maybe never listen never right and so what what does stewardship then offer in terms of accountability, in terms of our role in our communities, right? What role are we playing? Especially when I think about you, you have divorced higher ed and I am so jealous of your ability to do that. <laughs> you divorced higher ed, right? But higher ed, one of the one of the current practices in higher ed really is rooted in in domination and this idea that we are better than everybody else, right? This elitist notion that we have the answers, the solutions, and everything you need. We are the, the saviors of humanity. But in reality, higher ed is a very, very violent space. It's always been a very, very violent space. It was created to be violent. What you talking about? What you talking about? Well, it was, let's be real. It was, it was created for wealthy white elite men who didn't have to be the stewards of their families, right? The second son, the third son. Here's a leisure activity. Let's go to college and just learn some fun stuff. Yeah. And now it's become a tool for domination, mm-hmm. right? A tool for violence. And so you know, when we think about these places that were never created for us, that we find ourselves inhabiting, you know, there there is violence that happens there. So talk to me about this divorce from higher ed and this becoming a steward and what that does for you in terms of your ability to thrive, not just in the present, but in your own curated futures as well. I want to name the nuance here, right? I actually was on a call with, and I, 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 you know what? Maybe it was after yesterday's call where I just was like, oh, so many things, but there's so many feelings. I was on a call with three students who lived, I think two lived in Austria, one lived in Denmark. Okay. So I was like, why y'all, how y'all found me, first of all? Why, why are we having this conversation? But it was interesting because one of the talking points of that conversation was they want to unpack this concept of saviorism, particularly white saviorism. And they were talking about volunteer tourism and how people and arguably students from like places like Denmark go to the global South, right? Volunteering. And they wanted me to provide, I guess, some contours around. They didn't ask me to talk about why that was good, but they got more than they probably asked for. Because I said, one wouldn't have to go saving the world if there wasn't violence in the world. And so instead of sending 15 kids to Uganda Mm -hmm. for photos, how about people just give Uganda their shit back? But seriously, and then you don't have to send a troop of 15 people there with suntan lotion. So, you know, so going back to my divorce from higher ed, because I told you I was going to go up and down the Mississippi River. I think, to your point, and I don't disagree with anything you said, I think higher ed in itself is this amazing possibility, yes? Mm -hmm. And I tell people all the time, 
it was not my mom or my grandma or my aunties that gave me bell hooks. And that that's a whole different conversation, Amber, right? But it was the academy that put the beautiful words of bell in my hand. Mm. And that's a wonderful thing. That's a blessed thing. So that when I say it's nuanced, I don't want people to be like, oh, throw the whole thing away. Because there are some wonderful things that happen in the space. But we we shouldn't confuse ourselves about why it was built and who it was built for. The academy as it currently, I mean, even if you think about how many universities in the United States were either built on, well, first of all, there's always the the lack of acknowledgement of the tribal lands, right? So there's unceded territory, first fact. Second factoid is either sitting on plantations, formal plantations, funded by plantation owners, or the money that came from generational wealth from in chattel, you know, from chattel slavery. Yeah. It can't get, it can't, you can't, you can't reform that. And you especially can't do that without naming that. Right. And so I'm a big believer in calling a thing a thing. And as long as we take institutions and put them on these platforms and only discuss the possibilities, then we're not naming the limitations, Mm. right? We're just not. So my own personal divorce was, I mean, I remember when it happened. I mean, at least I remember the first kind of facade. Mm. I was applying to PhD programs and Trayvon Martin was killed. Mm. I was walking down the street and I don't know, it was just so distinct. And I asked myself, how is this thing that I'm doing going to stop that? Mm. That was the first pause. That was the first heavy pause. And I've since had a lot of them, but that was the first one. I think now what I see the um, Academy doing to a lot of people, the global majority, I wouldn't just say people in the diaspora, is it names them. Mm. And when I say names, like, did you see Wakanda? You know how Black folks, we just rename a movie, but like Wakanda Forever. What's the full? Is it, It's Black Panther, Wakanda Forever. Is that the name? Child, don't give me the line. I don't know. That's what I'm saying. Wakanda Forever, right? Yeah. But there. <laughs> spoiler, y'all. And first of all, it's not even a spoiler. If you've not seen Wakanda Forever by now, then you want to be spoiled, okay? But there's a part in the film where they talk about what happens when colonizers get to name people mm. Mm. and the divorce that can occur with that. Mm-hmm. And so what academia as a whole has done is rename people mm. and has cost it, 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 and it, sh- and it has cost a divorce. Right. So to the extent that when I show up in academic spaces, all black and fine and people try to figure out where I'm from, who I'm affiliated with, like, you know, AKA what, what, what gang are you referencing? <laughs> yeah. And there are beautiful interactions with people like you, but then there are not so beautiful where people like, Oh, you don't, Oh, you don't have that. You ain't doing that. Mm. And I watch people who look at me mm. be fully dismissive, Amber, fully dismissive because I don't have the name or the branding. Yeah. They have. Pedigree. And so that's the part of that divorce. Like, y'all not gang life like for real. No. Right. And the last thing I will say is this, and I'm going to say this with my whole chest. Y'all find me. Don't find Amber. (laughs) The Academy is really good at one thing, which is promoting and investing in whiteness and supremacy culture. And just don't pretend it ain't. That's all I'm saying. So, you know, I think you know this. I've been working as an administrator in equity and inclusion practices in higher And it's been everything you just said is so telling and so important um, to really sit with and wrestle with. And one of the things that I struggle with, like you said, you know, you're walking down the street, you hear the news of Trayvon Martin's death and you ask yourself, what am I doing? that is going to stop this thing from happening. 
And I have wrestled with a very similar question, right? Like I've been telling people about the urgency culture that is rooted in whiteness. The idea that I need this thing from you right now, right now. And if you don't give it to me right now, I can't do my work. You know, I can't do my job. We, we're going we're gonna to sink the ship. Check your emails on Check the Check your emails, right? And, and COVID created the conditions to exacerbate that urgency culture because when we all came home, there were no more boundaries. It was, you're at home. You're always at home. So you can just do this work versus I'm not in the office right now, right? Out of office emails became a joke because none of us were in the office. And so how many times did you email someone? You get an out of office reply that says, I would reply when I return. And then they email you five minutes later. Because we have been conditioned to respond immediately, no matter what time it is. I get emails from supervisors at 10 p.m. on Sunday night. And I had to finally tell people, higher ed is not an episode of Grey's Anatomy. The things that we do every day do not result in life and death. Now, there are research initiatives that can actually promote life or death. There are, there are programs and systems that long-term can save lives, right? We're talking about people who study medical racism. That's going to save a life, but it is not the kind of life-altering moment that you see on an episode of Grey's Anatomy. So stop treating it like that. If you don't respond to that email at 10 o'clock at night, nobody's going to die. And, and so this, this urgency culture has really caused exploitation, right? We keep calling it burnout. It's not burnout because burnout puts the onus on me as a worker. I didn't take care of myself and I got burnt out. No, you've exploited my labor to the point where I can no longer function as a human being. And I most likely don't have the resources I need to reset and ground myself. I do not, Right. Because wellness has never been prioritized in this country, right? I, I recently purchased uh, Radical Rest. Um, let me find this. So I'm not making all this noise. Rest is Resistance, a manifesto by Trisha Hersey. And let me tell you, like reading this, I'm just like, child, there is not a bone in my body that has been conditioned to rest. When I rest, I feel perpetually guilty because I'm not stopping the future Trayvon Martins. But guess what I cannot do if I don't rest? Stop the future Trayvon Martins, right? And so, well, no, we would be stopping the George Zimmerman's, not Trayvon Martins. Rest, urgency, right? And then don't get me started on cancel culture because now that has made people terrified to even do anything. Paralysis. Right? We're so terrified to, to mess up that we won't even try. Can I insert something here? So one of the tenets we know of whiteness and supremacy is urgency. There's a replacement though, right? For all of those, the, the impacts of empire, right? That would say we need to be urgent. The invitation from our indigenous and ancestral wisdom keepers is to prioritize, uh -huh. right? And so when I, prioritize, I can say, this is important. This is something I should lend energy to, uh -huh. focus, labor with, right? And so part of what we saw with the murders of George and Brianna and Mr. Aubrey was people like being urgent, uh -huh. right? And I, I, on a most human level, I also get that, right? Like people... You, there's a lot of layers there, right? So I don't want anyone to hear me say, well, was it a problem to protest? No, it wasn't, all right? People showed up in solidarity and collectively put their boots to the ground, that thing. Uh -huh. But receipts, the streets is talking, right? <laughs> what the streets is telling us, not just the streets, the data, Amber, the latest, what, what I think we got 2020 numbers, 2021 numbers, more police officers killed people last in 2021 than in 2020. Yep. Data, baby. So Jay-Z says women lie, men lie, numbers don't. 
So the numbers are telling us that people, the priorities didn't change. Because if your priorities had changed, then you would have taken that movement from the street to the courthouse, to your legislator. You see what I'm saying? So part of how we have to contradict to create this future we want is say, we got to replace these values. We got to replace urgency with prioritization. We got to replace ownership with stewardship. You get what I'm saying? Like we have to redirect because the things that the white owning class have offered are not sustainable for the whole of humanity. They are not. And they were not designed to -hmm. do that. So when you say urgency culture, yeah, it's hella problematic, but also there is something more. There is an invitation to more that exists. Yeah. I got another replacement for you. I want to replace productivity with pleasure. Let me get off the phone right now. Listeners, y'all don't have the video, but I'm about to show Amber something, and then I just want Amber to laugh, okay? I'm at my home (laughs) office. Wait a second. Oh, I wish our audience could see. I wish. But this is real, right? So, you know, I'm thinking about, you know, when when queer became the catch-all phrase for non-normative sexuality, it became a movement. We are queering everything. There are classes called like, you know, queering insert famous white poet, like, you know, queering. I got no names right now, but we, we, we created, I use we loosely way too much. We created the space to queer our entire lives. We're queering the family, right? Non-normative family, non-nuclear families. We're we're queering this idea of choosing our family. We're queering... We're querying our work, like right? So we choose work where we can create thriving for our queer communities. Um, we queer our fun, right? From from going to, to the queer bars to, to going to see Indigo Girls. Like there's a lot of queering happening. So queer becomes a rubric, right? It becomes this sort of overlay for everything we do. So I had a friend ask me, you know, how do you identify sexually, Amber? And I was like, you know what? I'm a pleasure sexual. And then some a, a light bulb went off in my head. And I said, oh, my goodness. What if we used pleasure as an overlay, not just in how we seek out intimacy, but how we live our lives, right? So for me, the pleasure sexual is the person who does not use external um, external criteria for choosing an intimate partner. So most of us, if you ask somebody, what are you attracted to? They're going to give you a list of physical attributes that they would seek out in a mate. Your, your little bit more sophisticated folks might add personality characteristics, values, things like that. But, you know, we've been hearing the mantra tall, dark, and handsome from birth, right? And so we naturally nurtured gravitate towards these things, which prevents us from loving people wholly. We love body parts and we choose the specific dimensions of those body parts. Okay. And so I said, for me, I I want to invite myself to choose partnership based on what someone can do for my physical, emotional, and mental body. And it, it, it transformed how I think about partnership. And, and what it forced me to do was name my needs, my boundaries, my pleasure points, what I like, what I don't like. It forced me to get to know myself intimately. And I started thinking, what if I did this for everything? You know, when I, when I think about career choices, what if I chose a career not based on prestige, money, but what I love, what makes me happy, what brings me joy, where I live. What if I chose where I live based on what brings me joy and pleasure? And so I am, I'm really, I'd love to just think through what it would look like to replace productivity with pleasure. Cause I hadn't thought of it like that until you just said that, right? We need to retire some ways of being urgency, retiring. 
you know, like, like we don't do that no more. <laughs> so what does that look like for you, right? Replacing productivity. Because productivity is white supremacist, capitalist, patriarchy. It is. It's all of those cousins of empire. I mean, I always learn so much every time you and I hook up. And this is a lot. And I'm saying this in a very vulnerable way as someone who is only now. And while my black ain't cracking, I I think I am midlife. Oh, Lord, have mercy. <laughs> I'm just, I'm not a young duck is what I'm trying to say. <laughs> I rebuke this notion because I I'm think we are duck. the same age. I rebuke this. <laughs> All right, you go ahead on, fam. But I, I say that to say, I'm, I struggle with pleasure. I struggle with receiving it. And, you know, these things are so interconnected. These exchanges, though, don't come without cause to empire. And so when you sit with the, the, the reality, right, is the larger social apparatuses, those institutions in our lives, wouldn't. Um, have us replace pleasure with productivity because productivity makes somebody productivity as a value is going to make sure that somebody gets to buy their fifth vacation home this year. Right. If we got rid of urgency and replaced it with prioritization, someone working at big pharma, right. I mean, I look at things so systemically. I, I That's where I put a lot of my focus. And we have to realize that we live in a system that is large, in a set of systems that is set up so that only a small fraction of the people who live can thrive. And so... I'm here for us replacing pleasure with productivity, prioritization, you know, instead of urgency, the communal instead of the individual. But that is a giant reframing and undoing that will cost. I'm about that life because I'm not profiting largely from the way this works. But What's really scary, Amber, is most people aren't profiting when Jeff Bezos goes out of space, right? But I think part of the the, the stronghold that we're going to have to wrestle with folks, and this is even hard for me to say it, is a lot of people are going are gonna to continuously invest in violent systems because they're waiting their turn. Mm-hmm. And that's the part where we got to be honest, right? A lot of people aren't going to be committed to introducing pleasure as an overall theme for our lives because they believe in the hustle. And I want to specifically talk to our our kinfolk in the diaspora, the African diaspora. Because when you sit down with some of the things that we kind of take ownership as a community, how did we become the culture of no days off? Yeah. Yeah. Madame, your your ancestors literally could not take days off if they were enslaved. How did we come, how did our people become the people of uh, I'll sleep when I'm dead? Mm. That's not good for anybody, right? So no, no people should have that as a mantra, but we're talking about descendants of enslaved folks? So there's all of these value systems that we've inherited because for whatever reasons, if there's multiple, we have buy-in. I want my turn. And when will that stop? So people who look like you and I, unfortunately, will struggle creating these new value systems because that's the thing that has been codified into us that means success, that means responsibility, that means to be a fully engaged you know, adult, you know what I'm Absolutely. saying? Absolutely. Um, I mean, and we can, we can talk about all the ways that we've bought into these systems, colorism, right? Um, again, back to pleasure, who we are attracted to, right? What do we lift up? 
what trends on Instagram and TikTok. And we, we participate in these things in droves and oftentimes are not thinking about what kind of future becomes because of that participation. I was in, um, I was in Costa Rica last week because I needed a vacation, but also like I am trying to, I'm serious about prioritizing pleasure. And so I was like, can I unfortunately buy some property and be there more often than not? And what would be required for me to exist there and thrive? And the things that I would have to change about my life are jarring. And so I had to really reckon with myself, right? How have I bought into capitalist success? You know, I have, I have well over a hundred pair of shoes. I have a closet full of clothes that actually creates decision fatigue on top of my decision fatigue because of mothering, because of daughtering, because of working. And I was like, I don't need none of this in Costa Rica. First of all, this is just not the culture, right? That's not, we're not. That's not what we're doing. You know, I was... You mean people ain't walking around trying to flex on folks? No, I was actually walking in downtown San Jose and the police pulled me to the side and said, they started talking to me really fast in Spanish. Apparently people were like, I look Costa Rican. I was like, I don't, I don't think that's true. I think you just cannot read my face as blackness because you've been taught that blackness has to look a particular kind of way. But that's a whole other conversation, right? Because I get asked all the time, what do you mix with? Not are you mixed, just what do you mix with? And I say black and black and they're like, oh, one person even said, you're too pretty to be black. I'm sorry. You're too pretty to be just black. You said black. Did you just say to me? What did you, did you just say that to me? Because my ancestors are about to get you. Anyway, so, so I'm walking through Costa Rica and the, the police officer stops me and is speaking to me very quickly in Spanish. And I, I said, you know, no, no entiendo. Uh, I don't understand. I speak, I don't need to speak English. Just I speak English. And she said, take your chain off. Because people will see that and assume that you have a lot of money and they will prop you. And I'm just like, and I didn't even think because I had been in this space of just like feeling completely, I took all my guards down. I wasn't looking over my shoulder. And I, so my awareness kind of went away. And I just was like, man. And I said, I don't need this here. I don't need these things that show I've made it. These artifacts that promote uh, status. And this is not what the conversation we're having, but this might get some people delivered. People struggle with seeing Black folks in particular, the ways in which we flex and show things and stuff like that. There's a component of that, which is showing like, I am of a different caste Mm -hmm. that we have used as a self-protection. Absolutely. Right? Like, don't treat me. And this is so sad. But right? Like, treat me special because I can afford things. Absolutely. I Listen. I, I t- I've talked about this for so long when I used to, cause y- your girl have a heavy foot. The first thing I get when I got stopped by police, I work at so-and-so university, sir. I live in so-and-so neighborhood. I'm using those as artifacts to say, Hey, can you string together some understanding of my worth and value based off of stuff? Stuff that's stuff that's legible to you. This is legible to you. So I'm, I'm human. And so that that material ownership, back to ownership, that material ownership gives us license to just exist and survive, right? And so this notion that Black people just want to flex and buy, you know, we're the biggest spenders. No, no, we're not, first of all. But the idea that we are because we somehow feel we have misplaced priorities, right? We don't, we don't know what we should, we don't know how to save money, whatever. A lot of it is literally about survival. It's about trying to fit in, in a space that continually denies you space, right? And so being in Costa Rica, I was like, I, I don't feel the need to have these things. I don't need these things. So I brought a whole suitcase full of junk and I wore the same two outfits the whole time I was there. Let me tell you how much less stress I felt every day just having to take myself out and about. And so it started getting me to thinking about our entire conversation around equity. Health equity, employment equity, just all the different equities and all the policies. And I was like, the, 
all of our conversations are rooted in capitalism. They're rooted in saying this person should have the same resources or the same access to resources as this person. But peace is not a resource. And I was like, when we, when I traveled to Costa Rica, I felt a sense of peace. So full disclosure, I have to take drugs to go to sleep. My, my stress is so high and my brain activity is so high that I have to take sleep aids or else I cannot sleep. When I was in Costa Rica, I did not have to take sleep aids. I experienced a particular kind of peace that rewired my brain. And it got me to thinking how many people who look like us can go to a place and experience that peace. That's the kind of equity we need. Okay, so now I want to offer a counter story because if someone hears this and hears your story and doesn't connect with it, I want them to feel okay. All right? So that's so that's why I'm offering this counter. So I was in Jamaica at the top of the year. I hadn't had a panic attack since 2019. Mm. The mm-hmm. first thing your girl did when she got to Jamaica was have one at the airport. And there was a lot of things that filled that anxiety moment, right? So I have generalized anxiety. It hasn't presented itself in a panic attack in years. There wasn't just one thing, but I want to name. When I finally got to the resort, the green is greening, the ocean, the I, I was, it was just gorgeous. Mm. And I couldn't tap in. I couldn't. I was like, hashtag soft life. Nope. My body that is so, that has spent 40 years being hypervigilant. Even though I'm telling my brain, Amagdala, chill, we good. Mm-hmm. My brain's like, we don't know that girl. It took three whole days and a lot of things to get into <laughs> A lot of pleasure. For me to finally get in my front, my prefrontal brain. Sure. So by the time I got prefrontal, I had to come back here. And so I'm saying that to say that that pleasure that is so necessary that you were able to tap into, there's so much triggering that comes with, there's so much trauma. The brain is so used to one experience. You know what I'm saying? Like by the time I realized I was okay and safe, you know, it was time to go. I had to work through so much to get to that place of well-being. And so I just thought it was important to add that because I love that for you. I smiled on the inside when you told that story, but I want people to know that here we are, two amazing Black folks in these really vibrant places, and our body is still maneuvering mm-hmm. through so much junk to experience pleasure and joy and rest. Yeah. It ain't, you know what I'm saying? Like, it's so much negotiation. But that, so, But that's where I was going with the story. It should not take me having to leave my home to have peace because that does not create peace for everyone and it's not accessible to everyone, right? Who can't get a passport? My trans fam, whose gender identity does not match their birth certificate. Who can't get a passport? My undocumented fam, right? Who has the money to go to Costa Rica? It's not cheap. And so for me, peace equity looks like the creating the conditions for me to be able to sleep in my house. It looks like you not having panic attacks ever again because you are surrounded by things that make you feel a perpetual sense of peace. So that's what I'm talking about. Our equity is all about resources. Resources, resources, resources. But we're not talking about just a state of being. A state... Do we have the capacity to be at peace in our own homes? No, says Brianna Taylor, as we just wrapped around another anniversary of her death. We are not safe in our own homes. We are not safe in our own bodies. And so that, that's, you know, when I, it took me leaving to experience peace that I had never felt before. Um, and the peace didn't stay the whole time. Right. The more I learned about because the first few days we were in the mountains, there was nobody around us. But then the, the last 
for five days, we were in community. I, I stayed with friends in the heart of, of the Caribbean side of, of Costa Rica, where all the Black folks live, the Afro-Latinx folks live. That's where we were. And um, I, I am seeing the conditions of poverty, right, and how they have wrecked shop globally. So the peace didn't stay. But there was, but the fact that I experienced it at all, I said, this is where I want to focus my equity work on. I want my people to feel this peace and I don't want them to have to leave their home to feel it. So that, if that ain't an alternative future, I don't know what is. Listen, listen, I just, I, your story's stealing me. It's stealing me, and I wish I, I wish I believed Amber. I'm a big fan of Black Set, right? I, I, I am a big fan of folks having the autonomy and agency to leave. I also know that there are people who would never want to leave the states, and that's their their business. But I, I, I struggle because, as an abolitionist, I think. There's a component of our truth telling that has to name that this place may never. And that that feels like <laughs> that feels like a big thing to say. Right. This place. And by this this place, I mean, like the the continental U.S. Um, I just have these moments where I'm just like. I have days where I'm like, yes, the reset will happen. We are in the revolution right now too, right? So we are revoluting. <laughs> it's an active thing. We are not waiting for the arrival, <laughs> right? We are revoluting. This conversation, right? Um, there are several movements. We are moving, right? So I, I, there's both the hope for that possibility and we're building the muscle and the values to make those things happen. But there also is the reality, right? Part of being in the truth and living in the truth is naming the limitation yeah. of where we, what, what's got going on. And when we think about this amazing motif of peace equity, I got to ask, when was the last time this place was devoid of manufactured violence? It's never been. That is the creator of this space. I mean, it, I mean, it was before certain people arrived. Well, no, that's what I'm saying. This place, America, the United States of America has never, never been devoid Manufactured. I want to be specific. Never. Because as long as we are a species, right, we got to even contend with that concept of violence. Organic violence is a thing for every living being. You know what I'm saying? Like, yeah, every sea turtle ain't going to make it back to the ocean. All right? I think it's like, one in a thousand, dude. Girl, listen, I can't even watch it. I'm like, you can make it. Go, just go. Go, away, go. That was every night to go to bed. And every time there's a struggle, I'd be like, no, but no. That, that is organic <laughs> because that is like part of That's life. Organic. Life as a, yeah. as a living being, yes. you will be met with aggression. You will be met with grief, all of those things. I'm talking about the manufactured violence that occurs on a daily basis. Because guess what? Race is a construction. Gender is a construction. Class is a social construction, right? And so for us to have peace equity, we'd have to, A, name that this place ain't never been peaceful. We'd have to turn to the people who have the ancestral indigenous wisdom to guide us through that process and that takes a vulnerability. That takes naming. We don't have the answers. And here in the West, here in the United States, we love to act like we know things when we don't know nothing. Which circles back to the academy, which is this idea of having to always have the answers, whether they're the right ones or the wrong ones. And most of the time, they're not, they're not sustainable. They don't bring peace. They don't bring assurance. They don't bring affirmation. You know? And so I want that thing you're naming for us to get that takes a level of vulnerability that all of us would have to be comfortable taking ownership of. And, and let's be real, right? Equity is about 
people getting what they need, right? Equality is about everybody getting the same, but equity is about people getting what they need. Yep. And there are people who don't need that right now. Uh, there are people who don't want to leave. Like you said, there are people who are desperate to leave. Um, and so for me, peace equity looks like you having the capacity and the potential, the possibility to get the thing that you need, whatever that thing is, uh, without causing undue harm, right? Manufactured violence to others. And right now, the haves, those who have, they keep their sense of peace via manufactured violence, right? They, when you go into affluent white neighborhoods and you see, you know, we support the police signs everywhere and this idea of having police presence, police make them feel safe. Police don't make people feel safe everywhere, right? And so is a form of manufactured violence that we have to contend with, right? And so peace looks different for every person, for, for every family, for every connection. Just like intimacy and pleasure look different for every person, every family, every connection. And so I, I would be silly to think, you know, that, that, that's the, that, that, that there's a solid answer for all of us. Um, and and I'm I am trying not to be nihilistic. I'm trying not to be hopeless. I know I came with the like the dark turn. But you're telling the truth. I don't think that I will experience peace in this lifetime as long as I live in St. Louis, Missouri, United States of America. And that's why I am trying to go somewhere else. But I've often I have really been feeling a lot of guilt around that. So like every time those questions come up, if you won the lottery tomorrow and you had like $300 million, what would you do? Um, I would, I would help any person from a marginalized group who wants to leave this country because they feel unsafe, be able to do that. I would create mobility for those who want mobility because this place is dangerous for us. Every day I wake my children up for school, I'm like, I wish I didn't have to do it. I am terrified to send them to school. I am terrified to send them to social you know, gatherings with their friends. I'm terrified of being in this country. The fear and the terror that I experience with these three children's lives in my hands, let alone my own life, is exhausting. But not everybody wants to leave, like you said. Um, and so for me, it looks like creating the conditions for people to experience peace. So if I were to answer that question today, if you win $300 million, what are you going to do? I want to create peace for everyone and acknowledging that that peace looks different. So for some, it is mobility. For others, it is something else entirely. Um, I know that what we're doing now is not sustainable. Will continue dying and we will, be, we will continue suffering at the hands of manufactured violence. That's a sad note to end on because we're at our time. <laughs> it was a sad note. But hopefully, hopefully this has helped some people stretch their brains in terms of thinking about what it means to be present and attentive to our bodies right now, what it means to prioritize rest, and pleasure, what it means to be a steward over an owner, because you've got me thinking about what I own and what I don't own and what I should be stewarding and what I should be, like, chill out, you know? <laughs> um, this was an exercise in stretching our minds, and I, my mind is stretched. Yeah. I I, I have a, 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 a drop. I have some hope, though. I have some hopeful words. Share them, please. <laughs> I think that what one thing that will help make it easier to transform society is when we transform ourselves, yes? And part of what that looks like is what I like to call soul care, mm. not self-care, because mm -hmm. that has been co-opted by the, the pink hat feminist. I don't want none of their stuff. Soul care is giving myself a permission structure to be grounded, to not be discombobulated because we live in a society that really wants everyone to be perpetually adolescent. That's another conversation. To stay in my body, 
and to see myself. And I mean, truly love myself because here's the thing, Amber, when that happened, I love to talk about the New Deal era in the United States, actually, because that was actually a place of, of hope for me when I read that history. Mm-hmm. But when I believe that I deserve good things, Amber, really believe that. I believe you deserve good things, too. Yes. And then when we believe that we deserve good things, then we believe that they deserve good things. Right? And so what I have hope in is that if we can truly, and I'm not talking about that self-care stuff, self-love stuff that they do on the TikToks. I mean, truly sit in my body and acceptance and love and gratitude that anchors me to myself, to my ancestors, to the ground, to the earth, then I can see you. And I want this place to be better for you and your children. And I think that I have hope in. People loving themselves enough so they can truly see and love other people. And that creates the kind of consensus. Because we don't need majority. We need consensus to make change occur. And there it is, folks. The future of the present is about love. It's about soul care. And I love you. And I'm so appreciative for you sharing your wisdom and your time with us. And I, I really do hope that this idea takes, takes ground and that more people sit in the love, right? Because everything that we do, we do it because we love, not because we hate, but because we love. Because we would not be able to sustain this work if we did it out of spite. So thank you for loving me back. And thank you for being here today. I was going to say, I love you too. Thank you for being an educator who heals. Bill Hook tells us that that is, the, that is the task of an educator, to be a healer. So I love you. And I thank you for healing every time we talk. Hey, I'll take that. Thank you for listening to the Critical Features Podcast. If you're feeling inspired and looking for more resources, please check out www.ihje.org backslash podcast for show notes and links to resources and to subscribe.